But today, what I wanted to do was I wanted to launch us into a series that I've called or I've titled Upon This Rock. Um, I think uh, just based on the Holy Spirit's leading in my life, but also through conversations that I've had with leaders and people who are in the body of Christ, um, there is a hunger and a desire for us to know really what God is calling us to do, calling us to be. And so um, I want us to discover that and maybe rediscover that. Um, it's uh, once every couple of years we do something that's church-based through Scripture, and uh, this will be completely unique and brand new, no regurgitated, recycled material. Um, this is something that I believe will benefit you. I think church is really important. I don't say that because it's my job to be here. I say that because I was raised that way and because I believe God's word clearly tells us that spending time with other people who love God and love me is important for me. I think it's a really important thing for us to consider really our past as a church, but also to kind of plot a course for progress into the future. Um, I really feel like God has given us a purpose for being here in Clinton, Mississippi. He's given you a purpose for you living at the address you do, working at the place that you work, and he's actually knitted together, woven together, a beautiful image of himself in Clinton, Mississippi, in more than 30 locations here in Clinton, Mississippi, because the body of Christ is present here. And so I think it's important for us to understand really God's point of view on what the church is and should be. And it'll help us also as we see some crazy things that take place in the world. Stuff hits the news about people saying stuff from pulpits they should not say. Uh, things being approved of that should not be approved of. The world is going, well, you know the phrase, in a handbasket. And we as the church can help build the kingdom of God and offer hope in the midst of that darkness. And so I want you to... Um, Tap into, maybe for the first time, or reassess where you're at and tap into a passion for the local church, for God's body on the earth. Go with me in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 16, if you'll just turn there. The title of my message is from Matthew chapter 16, and it is this, it's a quote from Jesus, it is, I will build my church. I want you to think, though, uh, because if you're anything like me and uh, you, you, how many of you have been in church for more than half your life? Just raise your hand. Okay, that's a lot of you. How many of you for most your life? You'd say over half, maybe most, all your life, okay, right? There's a, still a good hand, uh, amount of hands going up. I think what ends up happening is sometimes um, we... I don't want to step on your toes the first Sunday we meet in January of the new year. But I, I think we as believers can become tone deaf to the word of God. You say, well, but pastor, you know, I, I come here and I receive from the messages and I like the approach of your ministry or I appreciate the way that you deliver the message on the, from the word of God. That's all good and fine and wonderful. But the thing is, 
the more redundancy or more repetitive that you hear something, if you don't actually tap into what God is truly trying to say, you'll miss out. So I've heard this passage of scripture before, and I've heard this phrase, and I've copped out and said, it's all on you, God. I don't have to invite anybody to church because you said I will build my church. But that's not the case. That's what I'm talking about. Us becoming uh, coming to the place where maybe we potentially get tone deaf to the things that we hear when we read God's word. And we don't truly absorb all the detail that God wants us to get. So today the title of the message is, I will build my church. Let's look at the passage in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 verse 13 is where we'll begin reading. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. It says this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter. Don't you just love Peter? I, I do. With all of his warts, I love him because he gives me hope. Amen? Simon Peter is the first, apparently, to speak out, and he says this, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. I want to dissect the passage a little bit for you today, and we'll go back through verse by verse to help you understand this clearly. But I'm not sure if you've brushed up recently on biblical geography, <laughs> but let me just tell you where they're at. They're in a region called Caesarea Philippi, which if you're looking at a map or a globe and Israel's here, it would be at the northeast corner of Israel. It's where three countries to, to this day their borders all meet. Those are Syria, Lebanon, and Israel. In the ancient Near East, before Jesus came, this place was known as a place of idol worship. Yes, it was part of Israel, but there were a ton of non-believers who lived in Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And a really cool, interesting fact about this region is the springs, the natural springs in the ground, are what feed the Jordan River. So, it's on my bucket list to go and visit Israel. I hope to go someday. But pretty interesting to just put your mind on the map as to where Jesus is at. So he's not standing, listen to me, he is not standing in the temple in Jerusalem. He's out with us. <laughs> He's, he's out with the common folk. He's out with those who he's actually got what I call a ragtag crew with him. 
a bunch of guys who nobody else would have picked them for the job that he picked them for, but he chose them because he saw potential in them and he saw their future. That's good news for you and I, amen, that God still chooses and still works through those who might not have the highest education or the biggest bank account or the greatest um, achievements under their belt, but God can still use them. In fact, he entrusted these disciples with the growth of his organization on the earth, and it's pretty crazy to think that he did that. Because if you were Jesus, you would have picked 12 of the most handsome, richest, smartest, whatever, to be your crew. You wouldn't have picked these guys. So Peter and all of his buddies give me hope. Jesus is recorded asking lots of questions in his ministry. He asks questions like, well, what do you want from me? Do you want to be healed? Then he asks questions like this. Who do you say that I am? And I think it's interesting because in all of Jesus's questions, and this would be a great Bible study for you to look at, is all the questions Jesus asked in the New Testament, because there's some really interesting ones. The thing is this, though, he knows the answer. (laughs) He knows the answer before he asked it. You say, well, that sounds kind of stupid to me. No, It's really smart and wise of God to do that because what he's getting at is something deeper underneath the surface of the life of the person that he is ministering to. It's the same thing that happened in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Not that God didn't have the GPS location or whatever on to know where they were at. He knew that they were there. He wanted them to reveal and let it be revealed to them where they were. So Jesus asks plenty of questions during his ministry, but the point of his question is always to reveal people's belief or their motive to themselves. So the heart of the matter is a deeper probing question that Jesus asked. So before he asked that question, um, he asked them, who do people say that I am? So go back to verse 13 or 14. They start to tell him, they rattle off a list, and they say, um, the verse 14 maybe, uh, it is John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. They've got this list that they're just spouting out saying, hey, we think that people are calling you these names. There's no basis, listen to me, there's no basis in any place in Judaism to believe in reincarnation. So they did not believe that Jesus was John the Baptist. What they're saying, what the disciples are reporting to Jesus is they're saying, you sure look like him. You're acting like him. See, John the Baptist preached repentance and you're out here preaching repentance. So the people think, wow, you must be a buddy of his. You are out here performing miracles like Elijah did. Elijah prayed and there was no rain and there was no rain. And then when he prayed that there would be rain, there would be rain. And there were all types of, there were multiplication miracles in Elijah's ministry. And then Jeremiah, Jeremiah's out there and he is, he is not a friend of the organized religious leaders. He is, he is giving them 
uh, run for their money, we could say, because every time he talks, he says, you need to turn back to God. What you're doing is not right. You, as a leader in the family of God, need to stop doing this and start doing this. He's all the time going hard after those who thought themselves high and mighty and, oh, I'm the best of the best. So this is the recognition that people have. But then Peter breaks in when he hears this all-important question, which is Jesus essentially, in the original language, there's two occurrences of the word you. So I want to read it to you in a paraphrase the way that we would hear it if we were standing there at the foot of the mountain that day hearing Jesus. But you, who do you say that I am? There's an emphasis there that really strikes the heart. And Peter's answer is, of course, in verse 16, his reply, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. The Greek word there for Christ, really, there's three languages that are used in the Bible. um, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. We believe, based on historical evidence, that Jesus and his disciples would have spoken very fluently. They would have been bilingual, if not maybe possibly trilingual. Jesus is hearing Peter use this term, which is a Greek term, Christ, but it has a Hebrew representative, which is to say Messiah or anointed one. So this is Peter declaring that Jesus is not just a good prophet like Elijah, Jeremiah, or even John the Baptist. He doesn't just have a good message like they have brought. He is worlds apart from any other person who's ever lived and walked the face of the earth. And he's the hope that we've been looking for. This is what Peter is describing in the way that he says this. So this is a side note, but for anybody interested, Jesus did not have a last name. His last name is not Christ. (laughs) We talk real around here, um, and uh, we try to make sure that we talk elementary sometimes to make sure that we all get it. But uh, my name is Dexter Bambera. Jesus' name was not Jesus Christ. That's not how it worked. It's a royal title to only be given to those who have been divinely anointed. So, Peter calls Jesus this other phrase and says, you are the son of the living God. And at first, that can seem pretty straightforward. You think, okay, well, God's alive and this is his son. Sure, makes sense. But the region where they were standing and at at that moment had a history of worshiping false gods. I want you to hear a different word when I say the word false. I want you to hear the word dead, unresponsive. Ones that you have to keep paying money to and never receive any benefit from. Ones that you sacrifice. Listen, there is some sick, crazy stuff that happened back then. But there's crazy stuff happening even in our own nation today. Back then, they worshipped a god called Molech. You should look it up. It's disgusting and horrible. They sacrificed their own children to these gods. So there's something more significant than just Peter being like, Hey, I'm so glad I'm here at Sunday school. Jesus, you're the son of God. 
He's making a declaration that proves the authority of the man he's speaking to being a, listen to me, a descendant, direct descendant from heaven, descended to earth to be God with us. You can look this up to Caesarea Philippi. That place is very interesting because in the ancient Near East, you'll hear where I'm going in a second. It was understood in those false religions that it was the gateway to the underworld, the realm of the dead. So that takes on a little different meaning when you hear Jesus say something about gates of Hades or the gates of hell in just a moment. Because he's standing in a place that has been known for generations to have been called the gateway to the underworld. In essentially a place, this is the Holy Spirit for you today in 2024. He is speaking hope in the midst of a hopelessness that is almost palpable. This is the place that we release the dead and they're gone and we never see them again. There's this hopeless despair in those that lived in that area. And yet here now we see Peter saying, no, 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 no. The hope that we've been waiting for has arrived and you are it. So calling our God the living God separates him from any other gods. In fact, the word of God doesn't use exactly these phrases but or these um, uh, terms, but I've, I've put some terms together, which are all biblical. I believe that our God is the grand designer of the universe and all that's within it. He's the creator of all things. The Bible calls him very clearly the ancient of days. He is the eternal one. The Bible says he is the only one who has ever existed that is uncreated. No one made him. He is self-sustaining, self-sufficient. He's the author of life, the word of God says. All life comes from him. And surely he is not dead. He is alive. He was alive then. He's alive now. And he will live forevermore. Amen. So this Jesus standing in front of Peter is our living God's one and only begotten son. This is, this is something... Can we just be straightforward around here? This is something dumb old Peter couldn't have come up with by himself. (laughs) Uh, That's not what Jesus said exactly. Okay. But he said, listen, your, your great IQ, your eyes, that didn't determine what you just spoke. You spoke something that God revealed to you telling you that I am the son of the living God. That's powerful. So in verse 17, Jesus then pronounces a blessing on Peter. He needed all the blessings he could get. I do too. Amen. Uh, you might be interested. You could look up his name. Uh, the Hebrew term bar, B-A-R, that you see there before the hyphen, means of or from. So Simon of Jonah, meaning his father's name was Jonah. Okay, This is how Jesus calls him, refers to him. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Heavenly Father. Amen? So then in verse 18, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades 
or hell shall not prevail against it. This is powerful. And it has a lot more meaning than we've given it credit for. I truly believe that. Let me be clear about this. Jesus is not saying, contrary, and I'm sorry to step on your toes if you have uh, some Catholic background. Jesus is not saying, Peter, I'm declaring you the first pope of the Catholic Church. Thank you for the one over here. (laughs) Um, The rest of them will get it. You just keep going, okay? He's not saying, hey, I'm declaring you the foundation. We don't read it like that, though. A lot of times we just read through it and we jumped around and we're like, okay, Jesus is saying this to Peter. He is not saying that Peter is the foundation of the church because Peter can't be. The only one who can be the foundation of the church is the one who started it, is the one who created, designed it. He's the one who can be the foundation of the church. He doesn't give that authority away to anybody else or that ability. Yes, Peter's going to be essential in the building of the church. You're going to hear him as you read in Acts uh, chapter 2 and following. Peter, who denied Jesus, just remember who we're talking about here now stands up boldly proclaiming the gospel message in Acts chapter 2, and thousands of people hear it, and the church of Jesus Christ is born that very day. So Peter is going to be essential to the New Testament church, but Jesus is, this is so cool, Jesus is both the founder and the foundation of the church. You know what that means Come on. Do you really know what that means? That means that he will use me as a brick in that building and you as a brick put together, knit together in the building of the family of God. But it means to me, he holds all authority, all responsibility, and it's all up to him. I think this series is going to be really good for our church. They say, there's a statistic out there right now that says over 80% of regular church attenders claim to have at some point in their lives been hurt by people in the church. Like, we're not just talking about, oh, he didn't say hi to me. Not talking about that. We're talking about real hurt. We're talking about betrayal. We're talking about people getting angry, division, strife, all those things. I'm telling you, the church of Jesus Christ is a beautiful thing, but it is imperfect. I've heard it said before, and I say it all the time. If you find a perfect church, do not join it because you will be the thing that ruins it. Speaking of, we've got starting point where you can take a class and learn what it is that we do at our church and what we believe. And we offer that on the first Sunday of every month. We'll have that again the first Sunday in February. We'd love for you to get involved and engaged. I think, um, without me trying to preach the entire series through here, I think the other thing that we also get off on, uh, like we lose sight of, is um, off track is we believe the southern United States specifically, but also the Northeast, also the Pacific Northwest, 
There are pockets of this everywhere. We believe that Christianity is a spectator sport that we just get to sit back and watch. It happens in New Jersey where I, I lived for a lot of my life growing up. Uh, Catholics that were the, what they called, Lily and Poinsettia crowd. That means they showed up to the two big holidays and that was it. Uh, we still, we fight against that here in the Southeast as well to say, well, oh yeah, my name's on the roster over at so-and-so church. Well, when's the last time you served in that church? Do you remember their address? <laughs> you know, like that kind of thing is important. It's not a spectator sport. God wants you active. He wants, he wants the church of Jesus Christ to be strong and healthy. So you might hear a message on a podcast from some other church or a TV preacher talk about a resolution for 2024. I'm telling you the resolution that I have in my heart, the, the thing that I am resolute about and have been about is that God would have a healthy church in this place called Celebrate Church. And it's built of you. It's not composed of walls, drywall, and all the things. It's composed of you as believers in the body of Christ. So, Jesus being the founder and the foundation is really important for you to understand. Um, the most sensible understanding of Jesus' statement, we could say, when he says, on this rock I will build my church... The most sensible way to understand that is the same confession that Peter just made about him being the Savior, the Christ, the Messiah, him being the Son of the living God. That confession will be the bedrock for all who call themselves believers, all who call themselves part of the church. Now, I'm going to tell you, this series is going to be interesting. You might laugh. You might cry throughout this series. But I'm telling you this. We think. Let me state it like this. We are wrong if we think all Jesus came to do was to give us fire insurance he came so that we would be a family. As messy as that is, as hard as it is, um, you hear the words of God throughout Scripture about division and strife, walking through some of those things. None of us do it perfectly. There are issues on both sides of any argument. But I'm telling you, God wants to build a beautiful church. In fact, Jesus, if we remember the Revelation series, he's coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle. That means that we've got to be dedicated to this thing called the church. The Apostle Paul states that Jesus Christ is the only foundation of the church. So Jesus is known for delivering truth in unique ways. Um, and I think when we look at the words of Jesus, the things that are recorded, his questions that he asked, those things are really helpful because we can start to recognize something significant about his approach to humanity. I think this past week as I studied through this message and studied through this passage, I should say, I think I came to realize something that I've glossed over that is extremely significant that I haven't really paid attention to. 
And I'm going to tell it to you like this. It's a very simple statement. Jesus says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of Hades, your version may say. Here's something important for you to understand about gates. This is the statement. Gates are a defensive structure. Some of you with spiritual ears to hear today need to absorb that. It is not an offensive structure. It's a defensive structure. They're entry points. So when you think about sports, war, conflicts, all of the activities that happen within the context of those things, they can all be categorized as either offense or defense. If your husband confronts you about an attitude you have, you might get defensive. If your wife comes and talks to you about some little place of character in your life that really could use some sharpening up, then, and we haven't had this, so I'm not bringing my dirty laundry here today. We haven't had this today, okay? We've had it. We've had it in our lives. Do you have that list on your phone? No, I'm kidding. Um, I love... Uh, I love watching, most times, I love watching Alabama football. Roll Tide, okay? Uh, you can shut up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't want to get too off the message. Listen to me. I was sad to see that their O-line did not perform like it should have. Because their O-line should have done something and not allowed their quarterback to get sacked seven, eight times in a single game. Can somebody say, oh me. Oh me. Oh me, really. But I'll still watch the game tomorrow night, but I'm just saying. War, conflict in your marriage, sports. There's two things going on. Offense and defense. Gates are defensive structures. Jesus and his disciples are in a geographical place known to people then to be the gateway or the gates to the underworld, the realm of the dead. But here's the thing. Gates keep unwanted elements out of your space or your property or your country. I'm not going to say anything else about that. Keeping that in mind, we need to understand Jesus is not just desiring that the church would make it through by the skin of her teeth. That's not his hope for the church. His hope for the church is that it would be healthy and strong and vibrant and thriving and beautiful and world changing. That's his hope for the church. And Jesus is saying this. Hell's defenses will not thwart the church's progress. See, I think for a while we've been thinking we're on the wrong side of this war, this conflict. And we've not, and you say, well, pastor, but Jesus talked about kindness and love. And he doesn't want you to offend people. The gospel is offensive. 
telling me that I am going to hell offends me. But giving me hope that there was a man sent from God to redeem me of my sins and to help me correct my course in life and to make me holy and to live for him. That is the good news of the gospel that can change me. So I can get my feelings hurt for a minute, but then I'll be better after I accept this truth. I think for a while, the church has just been on the defensive. And we've just been shouting since I was a kid. Boycott this. Stop buying that. Don't go here. Okay. I've only got one cheerleader in this game. So until I get more, I'm going to move on. No, I'm just kidding. Jesus is saying something important. That all of hell's defenses will not thwart the church's progress. And we, we act like pity poor me. Oh, well, we just can't. Well, people just won't say yes when I invite them to church. Instead of aggressively approaching this, knowing that Jesus has deemed it necessary that the church not just survive, but thrive until he comes again. Because he wants the biggest family possible. The church will advance and prevail through the confession that Jesus is the Savior and the Son of the living God. It's also interesting, and I don't want to get bogged down too far into ancient Near Eastern languages or things like that. But in the Greek, when you read this, and I'm no, no Greek scholar, but in the Greek, as I studied this this past week, you'll understand this. I'm not calling into question the inerrancy of God's word. I'm just telling you, translators and those who helped get the word of God in your hands made some small changes. In the original text, the word against does not appear. I want you to reread that with this in mind. Essentially, that the verse could be stating or could have been stated this way. The gates of Hades shall not withstand it we should be on the offensive we are carrying the ball we are the ones who have got to have an o-line somebody listen to me today got to have an o-line that protects the sheep in the fold We've got to have people who are willing to say, yes, I want to build relationship with you. I want you to get to know my family and my family get to know your family. So that sometime when you notice things aren't right, you're able to talk about it and to say, hey, what's going on? Can I pray for you? To call people out. You say, no, 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 pastor. We've been told for a hundred years, not really, just a couple generations. But we've been told that your religion, your relationship with Jesus, that's you, that's private, it's personal no it's not it's the business of the church say pastor i don't know what church i came to today you might not be back next week but i'm telling you the news today that the church is a beautiful thing but i think there's things that we should be doing that we haven't been doing that we need to start doing the gates of hell shall not withstand it 
In verse 19, Jesus tells Peter that he'll give him the keys. Keys lock and unlock. We have a problem recently with a lock around here. Some, some of us know what that problem is. I don't want to make that public knowledge. Uh, but when locks fail, that's not a good thing. I wake up every night since I was a kid. I wake up every night and use the restroom once in the night, sometimes five or six times now that I'm over 40, okay? When I do, I do the dad thing. But I've been doing the dad thing before I was a dad. And that is I walk the house and I make sure windows are closed, deadbolts up, not this way, but, you know, I'm checking on things. That's just a normal thing. Do we have any ladies in here that do that? Y'all check locks and go around. Okay, good. That's good. Okay, more power to you. We need more help when it comes to that. And uh, my kids went to sleep the other night, and I woke up, and I usually check all these things, but I was really tired, went to sleep, and uh, came out and saw that the back door was unlocked, and quickly resolved that. <laughs> I didn't wake up the children and drag them to the door to make them lock it like I wanted to. I just locked it because I'm such a good guy. I just locked it and went back to sleep. Locks represent access. And I don't want anybody who I have not authorized to have access to me, my family, my property. So I use that lock. There's a key for that lock. Are you getting this pattern? He's standing at a place called the gates. And he is saying to Peter, now that the Father has revealed this truth to you, your eyes didn't behold it, you didn't come up with this on your own, but spiritually speaking, God delivered this revelation to you, and now I'm handing you a key that will access the kingdom of God. And he says it like this, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He's talking about access. Now, I've met some sweet saints. The Holy Spirit's with me today because I just chose perfect words for that. Sweet saints uh, who want to bind the devil, and I'm going to bind this and bind, and they got to talk like that in order for it to work, okay? I love it. I grew up in it. But I'm telling you, there's something more to this. He's not just simply saying, like, bind a sickness. He's not saying that. He's talking more about access to the kingdom of God. Because then you hear Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the word of God. But then by Acts chapter 8, those who have rejected, they've been excluded from the kingdom of God. They've been locked out of the kingdom of God. Temporarily, they can come back and maybe have a heart change and God will do a wonderful work in their lives. But we see that pattern, that that refusal happens and then access is denied. You say, I didn't know this much about the church, Pastor. Yeah, because keys unlock and they represent authority. Jesus is giving authority to his disciples in that very moment so that they would understand 
once the Holy Spirit came and Peter delivers that message, then the keys of the kingdom are activated. And there are people who are being brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light simply because they heard and they believed. This is important. This means that there's hope for you to speak the gospel message to that coworker, that family member, that friend, and that God could use that to turn someone's life around. So it seems like the disciples are given a gatekeeping role because through the preaching of the gospel, they're able to help people transfer from this gate of the underworld where there's hopelessness and despair and be brought in to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Don't get bogged down by verse 20. And I'm wrapping up. I'll give you my four points in just a moment. Verse 20, this is strange. I don't know if you've ever read a verse like this before, but it seems odd. Um, Jesus uh, delivers this same sort of message or wording to someone who receives healing. Uh, and we come across that and we may just be like, Jesus, like, you need some coffee? What's, what's going on? Like, why? I mean, you're here for this, right? But don't get sidetracked or bogged down by that. He's not saying never. Jesus being who Peter called him and said he is, is the son of the living God. He's aware that there is a divine um, timetable. I almost said turntable, not that. There is a divine timetable or a timeline for him to endure suffering, hardship, all of these things. And he didn't want that plan being aborted in that moment or being cut short because a disciple shot his mouth off. So he's saying, hey, listen, let's just keep it for now. Wait until the right time. He's not saying never. So don't look at that and say, well, I mean, Jesus told his disciples, don't tell anybody. <laughs> I'm good. No. He's saying there is a time and a place, and it's not right now, but it's coming. I'm here to tell you today, by the Spirit of God, that time has been here for a long time now, for more than 2,000 years, and that time is waning. It's shortening it's getting closer to closing. So what does this passage mean for us today? In the church, 2,000 years later. Number one is this. To become part of the church, you must become or be born again. Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, it's recorded in chapter 3 of John. And you've heard it, probably every one of us could recite it by memory. John 3.16, for God. Okay, great, stop. His conversation with Nicodemus, you know some parts of it, but you might not realize or remember this part, which happens earlier than that in verse 3 of chapter 3 in John. Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, 
He cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus is just a regular average guy who doesn't really comprehend what Jesus is trying to get at here. And he's got some strange questions he asked Jesus as a result of this. But God, through Jesus, in that moment, is ministering to Nicodemus, saying, you've got to have an eternal change that you cannot make yourself. The only thing you can do is take a step in that direction to say, I believe you are the son of God. You're the only way, the truth and the life. And I confess my sins and I turn my life over to you. That's the way that we become born again. Nicodemus was like, well, you know, I'm too big to go back to my mommy's belly. Yes, you are, Nicodemus. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about having a birth a spiritual birth where the dead in you comes alive and is redeemed. The sad thing is this. Hundreds of thousands of seats in churches throughout the world today, this very morning, are being warmed by people who look the part but are not authentically Believers who've experienced life change and have an active, living relationship with Jesus Christ. It's proven, it will even be, that statistic will even affect smaller churches, even our church. That we will know times where there are those who act the part and are not authentically a believer. Here's the importance of what I want to get you to understand. In John chapter 14, Jesus says this very clear statement in verse 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here's my challenge to you today. Make your move. Don't just warm the bench. Don't just buy new clothes to show up next Sunday and be looking in your Sunday best. Don't you dare just do it for your kids. There's the anger inside of my spirit about that. Now, I haven't heard those words in our church, but I'm telling you, I'm giving you that warning. You shouldn't do this for the sake of the kids. Your sin-sick soul needs help. Yours does. Mine does. We all do. We've seen people come to the church for the sake of the kids and for the sake of ministry to the kids. And I'm not faulting you. That is a great and wonderful thing. Get them here. Let them learn ethics, morals, the Bible. It's awesome. God's word will not return void. At some point, 47 years down the road, your brother could get saved who was raised in church but didn't live for God and didn't truly know him. That's my life situation, my story, my brother. Because he was raised in church, he had that foundation somewhere under layers and layers of dust. So it's not wrong to do that at first. But you can't keep doing that. You've got to do it for you. You've got to do it for you. Amen. I said enough on that.
Confess the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and give him your heart, your mind, your, your life today. That's how you are born again. The second thing is this. The church's only foundation, <laughs> it is not the Pope. I don't know if I can get away with saying this, but since I'm not on TV and there's like not a big crowd, the Pope is a dingbat. Okay? This guy, like what in the world is he talking about? These things that have come out recently, they're not in the Bible. It's not in the, it's not even in the church fathers stuff, discussions and things like that. There's no room for the kind of false teaching that an entire group of millions of people are listening to. Now, pastor, are you saying there's nobody saved in the Catholic church? No, I'm not saying that. And I'm really sorry if that hurts your feelings that I called him a dingbat. I think this current one is, okay? <laughs> Why do I say that? Because he's, he's not the foundation of my faith. He shouldn't be the foundation of your faith. You know why? Because he's a sinner. You know why? Because someday he's going to die. You know why? Because he's got wicked intentions in his heart just like you and I do. He's not the foundation of my faith. No denominational leader should be. You say, Pastor, you just hammered the Catholics for a minute. No, let's talk about the Baptists. Let's talk about the Assemblies of God, which we're part of. The, The leader of our denomination globally, we sat next to him in a meeting, my wife and I, and he babysat Madeline <laughs> on accident. Um, it's a funny story. I'll tell you really quick. We're at a minister's dinner. She's brand new baby. You know, she was so weirdo. Um, and we're sitting there and he's the guest speaker. And he just, he's like an average Joe sort of guy. And um, he comes and just says, hey, is anybody sitting here? And we're like, no, but we know who you are. This is so unnerving, like nerve wracking. And uh, sits down, just normal, average guy, you know, having a good conversation. Well, she gets up to go to get a refill of a drink. And I go up, to, of course, to the dessert table probably. And both of us end up leaving our only child <laughs> at the table with this man that we've never met. We've only seen pictures of and videos. Anyway, uh, we both start walking back when the reality hit us. And we look across this massive room and we're like, Oh my gosh, who's with the child? We did not do, we did not do our first child, uh, so well. She's turned out well, but, you know, the, anyway, as good as he is, was when he was the denominational leader. I can't put my faith in him because he can't be the foundation for my faith. Uh, our current, and you may not know this or realize this, but for our home folks, you understand some of the history from Hawaii. When we pastored there, I can remember going through a terrible, traumatic moment. And I won't go into the details right now. I pulled off the side of the road in the church van in Hawaii, crying my eyes out, could not focus to see the road because of the hurt and the betrayal. And I had one person who I had met recent to that moment who said, if you need anything, call me. I called him, he prayed with me, spoke to me on the phone. I couldn't get a hold of my parents, couldn't whatever. 
time difference. I don't know what time it ended up being. That man is our current leader of our denomination. A wonderful man, Doug Clay. A wonderful, wonderful servant of Christ. No matter how good he is, I can't put my foundation on him. It's got to be on Jesus Christ. Okay? Number three is this. The message of the church is the good news. It's the gospel. It's not... It's not 10 ways to improve your marriage, although you could use that and we do that. That is not the primary message of the church. It's not how to get your kids to behave or how to be a better steward with uh, Dave Ramsey. It's, it's not the newest curriculum of this and that. It is the message of the cross. It's the message of the gospel that life change occurs when it's heard. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. It says, for the word of the cross is folly. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And Romans chapter 1 verse 16 and 17 says this. Paul makes this declaration. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The message came first to the Jews, but now it's open to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, to any who would call upon the name of the Lord. Verse 17, it says this, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So the message of the church is the good news that Jesus saves. It's the message of the cross that gives hope to the perishing. But you've got to know that you're perishing first. The fourth thing is this. Jesus is the builder and you are the bricks. So, Pastor, I thought I had a bigger job. (laughs) Well, you have a role to play. Each one of us do. But some of us are a pinky. Some of us are a neck muscle. Some of us might be a big toe. Some of us are a hand. Some of us are a, are a pocket. Bless God. Jesus is the builder, but you are the bricks. You have a role to play, but you need to understand. God wants you in a church. It doesn't... It matters to me if you call this one your home and I want you here and I want you to call this your home. But I'm telling you, if you packed your bags and moved to South Dakota today, God's will for you, not something that you have to pray and meditate on and whatever. God's will for you is to just like that, find a church to belong to. He wants to put you in service You say, Pastor, are you just saying that because you're low on volunteers? No. We could always use more volunteers, but this is not some selfish plea. I'm telling you, and I've told people this for years, it doesn't matter the hurt you... Let me restate it very compassionately. The hurt you experienced matters to the heart of God. But regardless of the hurts you've experienced in the church... You notice how the Holy Spirit helped me with that? Regardless of those hurts, he wants you to be part of a body. 
He wants you to find your place and fit yourself in there. It's God's design that there be ministry in the body of Christ. That men fellowship with men. That women fellowship with women. That there be musicians and excellence in ministries and children's and first impressions and everything of the gamut. Because he wants you to be part of the whole. I don't know if any of you are loners in life. Uh, but I'm not. So maybe it comes easier for me to say this. I mean, there are times that I want to be alone. But I'm not just that person who'd love to be by themselves for the next 20 years. I like people. I want to be around them most of the time. Jesus wants you to be around us. Whether us is us here or us is South Dakota. He wants you to be around his people. Because he knows health happens with connection. Amen? Because he knows good things happen. You have a role to play in making other bricks. Making disciples, the Bible says. And we'll talk more about that in this series. But let me close with this passage, these two verses. First Peter chapter 2. To help you understand the building and the foundation and the founder. Look at First Peter chapter 2 verse 4. It says this. As you come to him... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a living stone being added to the family of God. As we close today, I want to make this invitation very clear for you. I believe with all of my heart that God wants to build his church. I have no doubt about that. I have no doubt in my mind that he wants to build this church. But the way he starts the building of the church is with those who have taken that step. Just, okay. Taking that step of faith to declare him not just Savior. I, I want you to just hear me for a moment. Not just the one who can throw you the life raft to save you from hell and eternal damnation, but a God who could be your Lord who can lead you and guide you, help you and comfort you. Who's calling you to do something in his family and to be part in a, in a magnificent way, even if it's in a small way. The most important thing that you can do though today is if you are not a believer, is to take that step of faith and declare Jesus is the son of God and I want him to be not only my savior, but also my Lord. If you're a believer in this place today, which the majority of us must be, I want you to look at me real quick as you stand. I want us to take a moment to declare and commit ourselves to God. Do it at your seat. You can come to these sides where these ladies and where me and brother Paul will be standing. We'll pray for you for any need that you've got while the worship team 
sings this last song. But I want you to take a moment and not just jump into singing whatever they sing. I want you to say a private prayer to Jesus. Jesus, I'm in it for the long haul. Maybe, maybe today, (laughs) maybe today is a day of freedom where you can finally feel the freedom that comes for forgiving those who've hurt you in some church somewhere, maybe even in this one. Release that and say, God, I'm committed to you. I know people are terrible and do bad things and the church is not perfect, but God, I love you more than all of those things and I want to give you myself. Commit yourself in some way, shape or form. Maybe it's that you feel the Holy Spirit saying you need to jump in and go to a membership class or you need to jump in and start getting involved in some area of ministry. Don't delay. Make the step. Make your move today.